Just a brief note before we get started, this episode is part of a special series we recorded at the Institute for Energy Law's annual Oil and Gas Conference. Some of the discussion will focus on issues facing the oil and gas industry specifically, but we think all our listeners will learn something of value. We also want to give a special thanks to the Institute for Energy Law for hosting us. Now, on with the show. Welcome, everyone, to the In-House Roundhouse, where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather around to discuss current issues and best practices. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez. I'm a commercial litigator with Womble Bond Dickinson. With me, as always, is my producer, Brian Ewing. Joining us today is Tanu Chatterjee, an assistant director of licensing with the University of Houston. Dr. Chatterjee, it's wonderful to have you. Happy to be here. Great. Thank you. We also have Karthika Puramal, who is uh, here with Womble. So thank you for joining us, Katrika. Hi, Mark. How are you? Doing great. Today, with two PhDs before me, I'm, you know, we're, we're going to delve right into some interesting topics. And I thought we would explore the issue of commercialization of university inventions. Specifically, I want to explore why it doesn't happen as often as it could and whether and either of you have ideas for, for changing that. Um, let, let's start by talking a little bit about the background. Um, Dr. Chatterjee, in a recent article, you noted that only 10% of the grants awarded by the National Institute of Health actually produce patents, and only 2% of those filed patents generate revenue. Um, are those numbers reflective of STEM research grant funding generally? So um, the data is alarming because... Um the government is supporting a lot of this basic science research, but the expectation is to have innovation, but not commercialization of the innovation. So there are two different buckets. So the university systems are set up to support research and scholarship and not putting products out to the market for financial gain. So all the policies are around that concept. So that's why it's challenging to bridge that gap between a discovery to a product. So that's what the article basically yeah. talked about. Yeah, no, and I understand the challenge. I assume some of that is historically there was this sense that if you could make money doing it, you know, that that kind of innovation would be kind of funded generically or funded yes. by the commercial sector. But I know that doesn't always, doesn't always happen. Yeah, and faculty is the incentives around the commercializing research are not reflected in their faculty contracts. So it's very challenging because now they're doing research, they're innovating, but they're not really pushing commercialization because that's not part of their incentive. Gotcha. Um, you know, what can we do? One of the suggestions you made in the article is um, maybe making commercialization activity a requirement of NIH funding. Tell us a little more about why you make that suggestion. I think it would be really helpful if that is a requirement in the sense we don't want to put too much burden on early career faculty who are working on discoveries, but activities around uh, looking into the market or understanding your customers, doing customer discovery as part of a project requirement would be one way to tackle this issue, understanding what the market wants and then finding a solution for that problem and not finding a solution, then look for a problem. Well, I think uh, Tanu touches on a key topic, right? When you're an early stage faculty, you are pushed to do more and more research and no one's paying you to commercialize, right? right? No one is saying until 
you make the big dollars, no one's going to pat you on the back and say, great, you know, you have these invention disclosures. Your recognition is kind of tied to the number of papers you publish, the number of students who graduate from your lab, which at some point may align with commercialization, but they're also very distinct goals for a young faculty. So having a grant that requires you and provides time for you to do commercialization, I think is a very good thing to support faculty. Right because it gives them that space, right, to think, how yeah. can I take it to the market? Yeah, yeah. And, and I think, is it true? I mean, sometimes I think there's even a, a bias against commercialization. There's some sense that, oh, no, I'm doing, quote, pure research, and it doesn't need to be commercialized. I don't care about making money. I'm here for the, for the joy <laughs> of science. You're both smiling. So, I mean, so, I, mean I, I guess this is one way to maybe combat that, the presumption that somehow pure science is is better or more you know admirable than something that's done for commercialization purpose. I think there has been a generational shift, Mark. Um, I think Tanu and I, our PhDs, are at least maybe I graduated <laughs> a decade before right. Tanu. I don't want to admit that, but um, I think early on that would have been. But now tech transfer is very pervasive in the yeah. university systems. Mm. People understand that this is the long game whether they're committed to it or not is a completely different question but having successful faculty around yeah has incentivized people you know um, tech transfer as organized activities started with the Bayh-Dole Act in 1980 so initially there was that huge reluctance but there's been enough successes people look around and say oh you you've done it Mm -hmm. I can do Mm -hmm. this and I'm not sacrificing research ideals in pursuit of commercialization. And to add to what Karthika said, I think also from the university side, now universities are recognizing that we need to support these kind of activities more. So I can speak for University of Houston, where we have the UH Technology Bridge. Now that's an incubator, a park designed to support faculty to start their startups. And university is pushing a lot of effort in making that part of the culture, mm. innovation and commercialization. So universities are also doing their part. Right. Why should we care that so few inventions are actually commercialized? At a base level, why, why do we want to promote more commercialization? I want to say the federal government, the state governments are spending a lot of money on early stage research, right? And we as the public, we want to benefit from that scientific endeavor. So should we be concerned that only a small amount of inventions are finally commercialized? I'm like, yes, but we need to be concerned appropriately because innovation is a game of chance, right? Mm -hmm. You have the right discovery. The right discovery has to be aligned with the right market time. And sometimes discovery is that early it's a couple of decades ahead of where the market will be. Mm. And um, while I am, you know, technology commercialization is a tough game, it's a long game, but we all need to be invested in it because it benefits all of us to get more of that innovative products in the market. Yeah, and also to add to what Kartika said, um, Kartika's background is IP, 
and that's her bread and butter. Protection of your IP is important. And now we are getting into a space where research and scholarship and publication is the priority for these early career mm. faculty. So how do you communicate that to this group that believes in publishing and distributing their research versus you got to protect it because a business can be only be successful if there's IP around it? I, I appreciate that point, too, because I do. I think you highlight a fundamental tension, right, between the, the desire to get your discoveries published and widespread and shared to everybody and the IP protection that you need if you're going to actually commercialize, monetize, profit from an invention. You need to be, the, you need right. a, you need to be one that holds that key. Yeah. And so there's definitely a, a tension there. And it's a significant amount of time and money that has to be spent in filing the appropriate patent applications at the right time because the U.S., like every other country right now mostly, is a first-to-file system. So you have to get your inventions, describe them in detail, and file your first patent application before you go out there and have your first scientific abstract that's published. So in a faculty's mind, this might be 12 months before the beautiful results come out that he can publish in a paper. Right. Mm-hmm. Right? right. So you're asking them, hey, work with us to develop a panda application. Right. <laughs> you know, there's a time gap between when they are ready and they think they have all the experiments needed for a peer-reviewed publication versus a patent application which has their idea and uh, all their steps on how that idea is reduced to practice and the experiments. And that's where I find the greatest reluctance from my university inventors. They're like, I don't have the experiment. You know, I'm like, you have experiments that right. prove the concept, right? right. You're here. Right. And they're like, no, I'll be there in 12 months. <laughs> <laughs> now they can, I assume you try to persuade them, they can patent it and still go ahead with that you know, more elaborate experiment, right? But they need to get that patent protection first based on those first experiments. Correct, Mark, right? yeah, you're right. Uh, we work with tech transfer offices when they receive an invention disclosure to evaluate is this the right time and is there enough of the right content to support a mm. patent application? Um, getting faculty to take time off from the experiments and work with us is the... (laughs) That's a challenge. (laughs) That is a challenge. Yeah, Yeah, that's part of our job from the tech transfer side of things. We really want to educate them, to make them understand that we are part of a team. We are here to help you. And we want to make sure that it's an easy process for you so that you disclose it to us and then we can send our patent requests to our attorneys who are going to help you again. So it's, it's a team that needs to work together and the sooner they realize it the better the process works in the in the scenario we're talking about where someone's developed something gets patented who is typically the patent owner i mean who's the one that actually does the filing is it the university is it that faculty member is it some new entity that's going to actually be the patent holder how's that typically done so uh, I can speak for University of Houston, and it's mostly common for all universities. So the employer is the one who would own the patent. So in case of a university, the faculty is doing research using university resources on an employer-employee contract, then the university would own the patent and pay for the costs up front. Gotcha. And then the idea is at some point, will they then either license it or transfer that patent to a commercial enterprise? Yes. Is that, okay. Usually uh, we work with the 
tech transfer team so that once the patent is uh, appropriately filed, it's licensed. And it can be licensed to a startup entity, it can be licensed to a small entity, it can be licensed to a large entity. And uh, finding the right match is, I think, a big part of the challenge. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. If universities want to encourage more entrepreneurial efforts or encourage folks to be thinking a little bit about commercialization or get the patent protection that we just talked about, are there things they can do that you'd suggest universities consider to me? I think from the tech transfer perspective, the human connection is very important. Making sure that the faculty understands that this is an easy process. We can get through this together. This is not going to be extensive paperwork that's going to be a burden. So disclosure, I think disclosure is the most challenging point for us because if they don't disclose, we don't know what the invention is and nothing happens. So I think we need to, as a tech transfer group, needs to focus on the front end part, which is the disclosure process and make it easy for the faculty. Gotcha. And I think Kartika. the challenge is also, yeah, I want to go back to Tano's point on the human connection. I worked in tech transfer office before my current career as a patent attorney, and it's always about that human connection because your inventor feels comfortable to give you a call and say, hey, can you stop by my office? I think I have an invention. And for them to think that a tech transfer person, their IP attorney, be a part of that team, right? Maybe this time, it's not the invention. It's not there. But there will be a next time. Right. And to be engaged in the process that this becomes a routine aspect to right. think about commercialization. Right. right? Yeah. I think that's where the yeah. human... So you're visible. Connection. They know you're there. You're talking to them. They yeah. know that that's... When they think they have an invention, they need to go explore yeah. it with you, right? Develop that as part of their thought process, part of the routine, just Correct. like they may have their own laboratory routine. Yeah. <laughs> this is part of this, the kind of a checkpoint to say, hey, you know, is there something patentable here? Is Do I need to go talk to a tech transfer lawyer? And, you know, even now, I visit my clients, my university clients, on their research symposium days, on their faculty meeting days, department meetings, because I'm listening to the talks, understanding what their science is, right? Mm -hmm. So seeing tech transfer professionals, IP professionals as part of the science groups, so that we are there when they're talking to their colleague. They're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And today might be that day for a patent application, right? Mm -hmm. And I also want to stress not all inventions need patent protection. You can commercialize non-patentable technology because you control the material. Right. So non-exclusive licenses to materials is another avenue for commercialization. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, and I know, and there's trade secret protection, you know, as well for things that aren't uh, necessarily patentable. And I know we deal with, you know, some industries in particular, that seems to be the trend as opposed to patenting and disclosing everything to your competitors. And, you know, folks are using, you know, confidential formulations, you know, trade secrets that are not, never made public in a patent and are, and are keeping those. So, right. yeah, there are other, other options that are potentially available to entrepreneurs. What happens, do you sometimes have faculty who decide they've got such a good invention that they're going to leave the university and, you know, start their own business and talk about what some of the challenges that happen in that circumstance? That, that's actually a great smi- scenario. I that's, see you smiling. We yeah, love okay. faculty you're, you're happy who, when that yeah, happens. We, we love faculty who take that leap. 
And in fact, we recommend that they leave their university jobs when they're doing a startup because it's really hard to be a startup CEO and be a full-time faculty. So we love that scenario, first off. Uh, we also know that they are the experts of their invention. So if anybody wants to commercialize it, they would be the best first step. But also comes with a different side, which is they now they don't have the business expertise. So are they open to bringing a business expert on board and mm. form a team that will help that process? Because we don't want to license a university technology into a company that's probably not going to make it. Right. So. <laughs> right. And PhD scientists may or may not be the best businessman yes, <laughs> from yes, you know, handling yes. the other aspects from, yeah. you know, uh, from personnel and all the other aspects, sales and other things that yeah. may not be the automatic fit of that yes. inventor. So having that core team that we can trust that would push this technology mm -hmm. forward is the key. Do, do you help those folks find business partners, or you know, or what? Or do you have suggestions for them if they say, "I've got this great invention, but I'm not a business guy." You know, how yeah. do I how do I find someone that's going to work with that's me to a great bring question. this to life? We try, we try. It's like matchmaking. It's dating. They get along. They don't. We really want them to get along. But it's fine if they don't. Mm -hmm. So we want them to go out there, go to meetings, go to conferences, meet a lot of folks that are out there. The best scenario is when they find the CEO that can mm. take their technology forward. And this is why you know, tech transfer is a contact sport. It, you need the ecosystem. And everybody in the ecosystem should be willing to share their networks. And I've worked on both instances, right? I've had faculty who did not give up their faculty position and license the technology to a startup but were available to consult with the startup. But they were like, my first interest is to take care of patients and do research. Mm -hmm. And coming face to face and making that choice is a big step because that means the faculty is saying, I trust my baby to somebody else, mm -hmm. correct? And that works for some people. And for some inventors, the only thing is to step out of the university system for a couple of years and raise their baby. It's their technology. They know it better than anyone else. Even to attract a qualified CEO sometimes takes a lot of effort from the faculty inventors and the tech transfer team. So I agree with Tanu. It's let's share our networks to find the right CEO. Mm -hmm. A CEO for a startup on stem cells is very different from a CEO for a company where it's an app that is being paired to a medical device. Gotcha. Um, certain cities, I think it's much harder to find the qualified mm -hmm. CEOs. Yeah. Um, you know, Houston, Texas, great place to find oil and gas um, mm -hmm. CEOs for <laughs> right. any size company. That makes company. sense, yeah. Yes. Uh, technology CEOs are also getting uh, pretty common over here, but I think in the medical field, we still have a shortage of qualified CEOs. Mm. Um, Completely agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. What's your role as outside counsel, Kartika? We've talked about this process. <laughs> I think our listeners may be interested in the kinds of things you're doing as outside counsel. So as uh, outside counsel, I do work on patent applications, helping them protect their technology. That is one part. We also help with finding CEOs, if we have people in our network, the 
other main section after protection of intellectual property is being involved in the commercialization transactions, helping our clients with license agreements, with startup documents, uh, with equity transactions for the license. So if you're a CEO, you know, what kind of stock do you get versus the inventor? What kind of stock does he get? How do we balance all this with the university, which needs to reap the rewards too? And universities have different appetites for taking equity in a startup. So we help them navigate through these different options. And for our successful ventures, we also structure the documents that would help them exit. Mm. Okay. Right. Um, so I've been involved <laughs> yeah. in transactions where the university is like, thank you very much. We are ready to take our money and go to the <laughs> yeah. next venture. All right. Gotcha. Yeah. So um, that's a full full range of those uh, of those services. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And as an IP attorney, I'm very excited that I get to be part of that journey for our university clients, for our startup clients. And it's it's a very fun journey. Yeah. That's great. You know, I've, I've seen reference to the term "valley of death" uh, in some of the in some of the literature. Certainly yes. sounds foreboding. Uh, but let's start with a definition. Can you tell our tell our listeners what is the valley of death, and and why should we be concerned about it? So, valley of death is a time uh, for a young startup when it's trying to find financing. So, it's a time between government funding or grants that they can acquire and private financing through VCs, PEs. PEs mm. come way later, but it's a time when they're trying to build their prototype up, grow their business, and there's a gap in funding that they don't have to build their mm -hmm. business. So value of debt is a very, very, every company goes through that. Every startup company will get to the value of debt. Right. And how do you find funding? to run your business through that phase is the biggest challenge. Right. Because you presumably don't really have revenue, right? At, the, yeah, at right. this stage, you're not <laughs> yeah. going to be able to, you don't have a, likely, don't have, yeah, in right. what, the context we're talking about, you don't have a commercial product, right. but your grant funding's running out. And so it's a yes. matter of finding those other sources. And you're growing because you still have to continue protecting your assets, IP, prosecution. You have to keep hiring more people. So you're growing, you have expenses, but... How do you get money into the system? Right. Suggestions for <laughs> solutions, or is that you know how do you, how do you help folks navigate so, the value of death? So one way to do this, and it has worked very well for a lot of university ventures, is to have their own pool of funding. So we have the mm -hmm. we call it the gap funding or okay. the bridge funding. Uh, so universities assign a few million dollars to the tech transfer offices to run a funding program for the most promising startups. And we have that at University of Houston also, basically just to support the companies through that process so that they can go out there and raise more money. Gotcha. So that's one way to do it. Okay. Um, other creative ways would be to go get loans. Again, that's so early stage, so I don't know if banks would be... <laughs> 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 so the other option I see is also the federal government, state government, and city governments are stepping in, recognizing right. there is this value of debt, mm -hmm. and providing grant support again to just get through that initial phase. And there are also corporate uh, funding sources available because 
large companies are interested in these technologies. They want to see what, you know, let's see six technologies and whoever succeeds, mm-hmm. right. we can pick that up. But we are involved in that product development stage, right? So I would actually encourage participants, you know, in the startup business, look for all opportunities. There may still be other types of funding available from other sources. Um, Small Business Administration has its sources. The um, NIH, NCI, they all provide Mm -hmm. different grants to help through that uh, Mm -hmm. valley of debt, whether it gets you all the way across or (laughs) halfway across. Get you you to the middle of the valley of death. But... Again, right, to continue the path of fundraising is important and to look at all sources to that effect. is. Um, and I like the fact that universities are making gap funding available. Uh, they're taking right. dollars from their successes and cycling it back into the ecosystem. And, right. Right. I assume part of the challenge is some of these inventions are going to be really profitable and successful, but a lot of them are not going to be able to be commercialized or not going to end up finding the right market. And so that's a challenge. And then also a lot of these are highly technical, right? You need people with PhDs like you to try to assess, you know, a complicated biomedical invention or whatever you're talking about is often something that a layperson's not going to know whether this is going to be successful or whether it's going to work. So I I think part of it seems like a knowledge issue of one of these six is going to be successful, but how do we tell which one? And do we fund all six and and see (laughs) or, you know, who's going to put their money down to make those decisions? Yeah, that's a very good point. So that's where our training helps <laughs> a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. So through our PhD trainings, any science training, uh, you have a vision when you get started on a project. You see your project would shape up where it would go five, six years down the line. I think is the same expertise that you bring into this role. When you look at an invention, you already have an idea of what the market looks like and what are the successful products that are already solving the issue. Mm. So you go in with that mindset and then you communicate that to your inventor. This is the problem. This is where I see your invention go and that's why it's a, it's an asset worth investing in from the university side. So really having that scientific background helps you paint that vision in the future. Again, it's a risk. I right. mean, you take risks on some and you don't. And combined with industry knowledge, because a lot of tech transfer professionals I know, they have worked in the industry. Uh, They have seen a couple of products go through. So it kind of strengthens your gut instinct. Mm. And combine that with expertise, you're able to evaluate saying, well, these six are promising, but these two, the market is here and now versus... This one, the market is not ready for it in right. a, until it's five years. And that means that's the length of time we're looking for investments. Yeah. Right. That's your valley of death, right? That <laughs> is. That's your, you're, you're measuring it yeah. out there. Yeah. You know, for example, I want to give stem cells as a great example, mm-hmm. right? That technology has been around. The discoveries were made several decades ago. But taking that fabulous discovery, finding the right treatment, finding the right delivery, getting that approved through the FDA, is just a long process. And you have to be sometimes be at the right place at the right time right. with technology. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a good that's a good point. And that's also a great point because when when on the university side when we are working with faculty 
startups, faculty, founders. They lack a lot of that knowledge. So it's part of our job to make them understand this is how the realistic timeline looks like. And seven years is not going to get to where you want to go. So when they're trying to sign a license from the university, we want to make sure that the milestones and the timelines are reasonable. So it's an educational process for them from our end. Yeah, that makes sense. I know we started the podcast looking at some of the commercialization numbers. I wanted to wrap up by getting your sense of maybe where things are going. You know, from a from a long-term perspective, are we seeing more developments, more invention, more commercialization? Is it about the same or is it going down? You know, where where do you see the next 5 or 10 years in this area? So the Association of University Technology Managers, they put out their 2018 survey. And they said, in 2018, 1,080 startups were started by U.S. research institutions. Okay, 1,080. Yeah, 1,080. Fabulous number. 69% of those startups stayed in their home state. Hmm. I mean, that alone to me is such a strong value proposition. Right, right. Right. You're, You're creating entrepreneurial businesses right there at home. Yes, I definitely want to end on that optimistic note. Mm -hmm. Um, Licensing to small companies is on the uptake because tech transfer offices recognize that, you know, getting the technologies to the market and letting the market decide success and failure, right? I think that as a tech transfer officer, you've got to be brave. Mm-hmm. Right. You got to be brave, yeah. saying yeah. Right. right. <laughs> Courage required. Yes. Courage required. Yeah. 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 And also to add to that, got to take the risks now and keep on evolving. So that's the future of tech transfer. That's that's the mm. way it's going. So tech transfer professionals, we are overworked <laughs> because our offices are usually very small. So the workload is huge. Oh, the survey did point out that <laughs> despite the increase in licenses and revenue, the number of uh, people engaged in tech transfer has actually decreased oh, really? over the four-year period. So yes. more is happening with less people. Right. Yes. Is that from budgetary constraints or hard to find people or both? Or? <laughs> All of the above. <laughs> All of the above? Okay. Are people using more outside counsel to help with the tech transfer process? I mean, is that something people have, you know, I mean, traditionally, right, we would see for one of our commercial clients, when their in-house department gets overloaded, that's when they would come to a firm like Wombo Von Dickinson and say, hey, yeah. we need help, you know, loan us an attorney uh, yeah. for secondment or handle this, you know, project because I'm overwhelmed. I don't know. I don't know if the tech transfer teams are doing that at they all. They have uh, outside consulting groups that do tech transfer. But to go back to the human connection, right, Mm. you have to be with the faculty on the ground, talking to them and engaging with them. And Mm -hmm. that is very hard to be outsourced. Sure. That is very uh, either to a consulting group or to a law firm. Right, right. And um, tech transfer takes stamina. It takes courage. So we've got to find the right people. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Right. We need more to news. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. So if you're listening and are interested, you know, <laughs> submit your resume. Um, but no, that that. But I appreciate you finishing ending on that encouraging note. Um, that is, that's a lot of startups over a thousand um, yeah. as of 2018. We're almost out of time. Any final comments or remarks or anything else you wanted to share today? 
Yeah. So I just want to talk about University of Houston a little bit. Great. So University of Houston has a strong entrepreneurial ecosystem. And the reason why I say that is not only because we have $200 million of research expenditure every year, but also we are the number one top entrepreneurship program in the country. Uh, University of Houston has launched 49 startups and we are the top 25 royalty earning university in the U.S. So proud to be part of the ecosystem there. Oh, that's great. No, thank you for sharing that information. That's, that's, that's impressive. Um, well, I want to thank you both. I think this is the first time I've had two PhDs as a guest, so I'm feeling smarter already, um, and I hope our audience feels, feels the same way. Um, I, I do appreciate you joining us. I think this was an important topic, and I hope our listeners enjoyed hearing it as well. Um, that brings us to the end of the show. I do want to remind our listeners you can find previous episodes of the In-House Roundhouse and subscribe to this podcast at our website, WombleBondDickinson.com, or on iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions or comments about this episode or suggestions for future topics, please share them with us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thank you for listening. This has been the In-House Roundhouse. See you at the next station. In-House Roundhouse is a production of Womble Bond Dickinson. Brian Ewing is our producer, and Robert Daughtry is our audio engineer.